it's Margot Tantow here. Welcome to Windowsill Chats, a podcast for creatives and the creatively curious. I am so glad you're here. I've spent decades working with artists and being one myself. I've spent time in the trenches figuring out the best way to get something made, how to put oneself out there, and how to get your work noticed and pull yourself up and face the next challenge. Windowsill Chats brings you creativity from a global perspective as I talk in depth to friends I've met along the way. I'm here to bring their stories to you as well as a few of my own and see if there's anything you can pull out for yourself. Maybe a laugh, something you can relate to, and definitely a little bit more community for your quiet corner. So grab a cup of tea or coffee, maybe your paint water, a glass of wine, and join me over in my sunny windowsill. lovely listeners. I have a fun one for you today. I am chatting with my sister, my Swissy Shelly, and that is super fun for both of us. I'm very, very proud of her. Always have been, always will be, and she is a busy one. We talk a lot about what she does and what she's passionate about. Shelly is a nurse practitioner, a mentor, a guide, and a coach. She's been called the straightener of crowns, and she does believe that everyone wears one. She is also a sister, a daughter, an auntie, a dog mom, a gardener, designer, dreamer, healer, believer in good things. And she says her superpower is helping people see beyond their perceived boundaries. Shelly's calling is to hold space for people at their most vulnerable times and to make their journey better, no matter what that journey may be. People tell her she makes them feel better, helps them find clarity, and brings calm to crisis. And I can definitely say that that is true. She is mad about dogs, rescue as far as animal rescue, equity for sure, music, freedom, Mustang horses, and humor, 25 cent words, books, things like that. Don't be surprised if she bursts into songs, throws profanities around like confetti, quotes a movie, calls people on their privilege, and opens your mind to possibility. Shelley's journey through grief after the loss of a very dear friend, was the catalyst to challenging cultural and societal norms, as well as the stories she told herself to find healing and joy within. Shelley believes that the world needs people that are living their most full and vibrant lives, not ones that are just fine, and that your joy matters just as much as the person next to you. So that's a whole bunch about my Swissy, but let me let her tell you herself. Settle in, and here is a wonderful conversation with my sweet sis. Hi, Swissy. Hi, Swissy. So tell the lovely guests why we call each other that. Well, we borrowed it from our friends, uh, Margaret and Gwen Sterling, who are actually mom and daughter, but used to call each other Swissy. It's short for sweet sis or sweet sister. And there have been many times that we didn't feel each other. We're very sweet sisters, (laughs) but the name has endured. And so much so that Cooper calls me Swissy and... Auntie Swissy. Auntie Swissy and Margot's name when another Margot was added to the family was Auntie Swissy. Yeah. And um, yeah, we've been using it for, I don't know, most of our lives, don't you think? Most most of our lives. And and it's my understanding that it's being carried on by others. So if you if it resonates, feel free. That's what it means. And when I say Swissy, this is who I'm talking about. That's me. Happy to be here. 
Yeah, we thought it was absolutely time uh, to talk to each other live and on the air because Shelly is doing some really amazing things and has done a lot of hard work. We both have done a lot of hard work, but today we're going to talk about yours with maybe some of mine slipped in depending. (laughs) Please tell these lovely listeners a little bit about your journey, both as a nurse practitioner and a mentor. Um, Long story short, I've had many careers and all of them have, have and continue to lead me to where I am and what I do. So um, I have worked in restaurants, in wholesale, in retail, in politics, was even a membership director at a YMCA, which I loved. But for me, working with people in their healing process came very naturally and really was a calling. Um, So when I was going to nursing school, I realized that my calling was to be with people at their most vulnerable and help make their journey easier, no matter what that journey may be. And going into critical care, that that journey, of course, was everything from saving their life and helping them transition out of the ICU and home to helping guide them on their final journey as they past and to make whichever journey that was as good as it could be for them in that time. So then transitioning that forward to my coaching, my calling's the same. I just add that my calling is to hold safe space for people at their most vulnerable and to help make their journey better. I've always been really well impressed isn't really the right word, awed by how strong of a calling that is for you, how good you are at not just the patient, but the patient's families and everyone that comes in contact with someone who's, I don't know, call it in crisis or in in shift mode changing. That is definitely, not everybody can say that for sure. And I love that you've leaned into that in the way that feels right for you. It's a very sacred invitation into somebody's life, um, particularly when you're trusted with somebody who's on the edge of dying and to meet people at that most, it's, I keep saying vulnerable, but for the family, it's, it's a, it is a crisis moment. And to Mm -hmm. meet them in that moment and to earn their trust enough to be invited into caring for a patient and their family at that time is such a sacred gift. Yeah. And that's part of why that calling is so strong for me, because I really believe that it's a gift. Yeah. And you you didn't figure out that's what you wanted to do until what many would consider later in life. I, I agree. As, as a matter of fact, I would be considered midlife when I figured that out. I was in my 30s and I had been working at the YMCA, which I loved, but working for a not-for-profit quite often means that you're not profiting very much either. <laughs> yeah. While it's, it's, uh, it was very gratifying and fulfilling, I had thought about going back to school to enhance my ability to help people with their wellness journeys. And I had scheduled that appointment for a Monday and I said goodbye to my very first lab the Wednesday prior. Dog lab. Dog lab. 
and Ace was his name. And while I was holding Ace in my lap and he was dying, an epiphany came to me so clearly. And it was his parting gift to me that this is what I was supposed to be doing, but for people. Mm. And sat down with the guidance counselor at the school. And she basically said, why aren't you going to nursing school? And the next thing I knew I was going to nursing school. (laughs) And so it was, it was serendipitous because it was not one of those things that I had ever planned to do, but I was absolutely meant to do it. For sure. And I think that that's part of this whole midlife-ish thing is that we maintain an openness to things that come into our lives and not just stick to plans all the time. Oh, we're so good at that. And then waking up and thinking, oh my gosh, years have gone by. What do I really want to be doing? Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about You mentioned experienced losing yourself in work, society, and responsibilities, but found your way back through vulnerability and some deep work. What did deep work look like for you? I mean, this is sort of a departure from what we're talking about, but I want to dig into why you've sort of transitioned from nursing specifically to really leaning into helping others in a broader way. So... I have this theory that we all have a terrible work-life balance because we have so much of our home life that is also work. But like many people in our society, I grew up with the belief that the harder you work, the more valuable you were. (laughs) And the way you prove that is by working harder and longer and hadn't really realized that exhausting yourself in that process was not valuable in any way, shape or form. And then when you think about, I'm not a mom, but moms, it's the hardest job anyone's ever going to have. And it's a lot of work. There's a lot of planning things and scheduling things and making sure that people are at the right place at the right time and making sure that people are eating ever, maybe the right place or the right time. And so there's so little time in our lives to establish a balance and to allow time for ourselves. And, and the other component is there's a a saying that I really like it's stop the glorification of busy Mm. and our society and our culture is just so geared towards busyness, but what busyness does is it creates a lot of noise that keeps us from hearing Mm. ourselves and from taking time to pay attention to that. And so in recognizing that one's value is not connected to one's productivity and starting to extricate yourself from that, let's just review, let's just rewind that for a second. (laughs) Say that again, because is everyone listening? One's value is not (laughs) connected to your productivity. Hard stop. Lesson number one. (laughs) But we're all, we're all taught that it is. Yes, exactly. That and the other part of the question is the deep work. We're also taught that our value is related to how we look. 
in this culture. Mm -hmm. And so for me, a lot of that deep work was around breaking up with diet culture Mm -hmm. and really excruciating work on self-acceptance, on learning to quiet the voices that were telling me that something was wrong with me my whole life and accepting that I'm not for everyone and that's okay. So the deep work really was, uh, it was excavating. And we think of that as like heavy equipment. And that's what it is because deep work is heavy lifting. And I think that a lot of people stay busy so that they don't have to do that. But you also are missing out on your real life. Oh my gosh, a hundred percent. It's really interesting. I say that like I was just, oh yeah, I agree. But I so agree because both of us for different reasons and at slightly different times have decided, oops, maybe it's time to look inward. And it's really remarkable how I didn't realize I had to do that work. I was just like, oh, I'm fine. I'll just put that in that little compartment over there and I'll put that one in that little compartment over there and move right along and stay busy. And then you realize something or lose something or have a conversation or, I don't know, catch yourself in a reflection and think, I better look inward. And and it's so worth it, you know? So one of the things that you're really leaning into is helping other people do that work, would you say? Absolutely. So I believe that I initially thought, oh, this is a really nice thing that a lot of people would think was beneficial. And in this being what? This working on, as I would say, going from kind of a stagnant stuck place in your life, which may be fine, but fine is just fine. I'm fine. Fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Everything's <laughs> fine. Going from that place to a place of living a vibrant life, living out loud, as um, one of your recent guests was talking about. And again, to come back to what another one of your guests was talking about, Mary Oliver, and what is it you are going to do with your one wild Mm -hmm. and precious life? And when you think about that, Mm. it's imperative that people do this work. It is. Because the world needs people who are living their full, vibrant lives, not just fine. No. And the cool thing about it is it's never too late. It's never too late. Never, never too late. And And it's kind of, it's kind of constant at the same time. (laughs) You took the words right out of my mouth. It's lifelong work Mm -hmm. because the conditioning and habits that we are trained into from birth in our culture are very easy to bring back in. It's very easy to go on a walk and then wonder, how long did I walk? How Mm. many steps did I take? How much time did I walk for? So that we could talk a whole episode on what telling your brain those things does to your brain. Mm Mm-hmm. But unlearning that and moving for the joy of it Mm -hmm. is an act of liberation all into itself. So it's those those things that we live in every day that 
most of us aren't even aware of. Yeah, because it's just a conversation we've always had in our minds to ourselves. We've always had. And then recognizing that those things are constraints that are put on us. And as we start to shed those, we crack open. And some people that may be just a little life shifting and some people that may be blowing up your life and doing something completely different. And that journey is what I'm here to help people with and hold them in a safe space. And that's important because another thing that we all are trained to do is people please. Right. And so we're afraid of being visible because people might judge us. And if they judge us, that might hurt. Right. And we don't like, we don't like discomfort and we don't like hurt. And the secret is people are judging you no matter what you do. So you might as well have a little fun and enjoy the ride. You might as well, right? I I know you have such a gift for holding safe space for people at their most vulnerable. I think certainly you prove that to yourself over and over again in critical care. And now you continue to do that in your counseling can you talk a little bit more about the importance of that and how it can contribute to making someone's journey better, kind of regardless of their circumstances? So say someone's, so it might've been like, okay, they're in, they're at their loved one's bed in the hospital, or they want to see themselves differently, or they want to make a change and all those things, any change is where we can feel really vulnerable. So how do you what do you feel about the importance of holding that that space for that? Well, holding the safe space is what allows people to lean into their discomfort yeah. because the f- there's so much fear around exposing ourselves to vulnerability. Yeah. On on so many levels. And if they know that they're safe, then then people are much more likely to be willing to walk down that that road that may be complete darkness to them. They may 100%. not know what they're going to encounter. No. But if they feel safe and held in that space, it gives them a different a different sort of permission. Well, they they go can go places journey. they might not have gone otherwise, right? Exactly. Because we're on a journey together. They're not alone. They're being very intentionally held. Yeah. It it really does make a huge difference. I think when you feel like, well, first of all, you might be thinking, oh, I want to, I mean, any level of things, right? There could be real trauma or you might be just wanting to make a change. And so when you know you have a peer group or a or a or a mentor or a you know a, a counselor or somebody you can talk to to help you through that that's just there for you to listen to to you in that space. I think um I think often we have so many boundaries for ourselves like you were talking about that that we we think oh I need to be here or I don't know how to get past this boundary and um, having that help uh, just as a way to kind of break free and, and move through it. And I think that so many of us 
can't see things the way that people externally can see them. Mm-hmm. It can be staring you in the face and you might not recognize the thing. And so I've always said one of my superpowers is helping people see beyond their perceived boundaries. Mm. And it can be as simple as, well, I've never run 14 miles before. Mm. Well, how far have you run? Well, I've run 13 miles. Well, if you can run 13 miles, you can probably run 14 miles. And that's a very, you know, (laughs) black and white, um, And there's much more nuance when you get into thoughts and feelings and trauma and Mm -hmm. intimacy wounding. Um, There's, there's a lot that people don't, you don't know that they don't know. Right. For instance, I had always thought of trauma as being somebody got hit by a car Mm -hmm. and they have broken body parts. That's Mm -hmm. a trauma. Mm -hmm. And I had never recognized, and a lot of people refer to it as big T trauma and little T trauma. I think that kind of downplays the effect of the little T trauma. It's all trauma, baby. Um, It's all trauma. And recognizing that experience of trauma and then why you may respond to things in your life from a place of trauma response where you may not have ever even recognized you experienced trauma. And now all of a sudden you recognize why you freeze Mm -hmm. when people talk about these things or why you run away when people talk about these things. And somebody sitting next to you who's known you your whole life might be like, well, duh, but that's not how we handle that. We handle it very gently because unearthing that trauma is very scary. Well, even claiming it as trauma. I think like you were saying, I know I've experienced similar. We've talked about this where I, I really, I, I didn't want to call some of my experiences trauma because they didn't feel like they were big enough, but it's all the personal journey. And if it, if whatever that action was changed everything else ever thereafter for my, for me and how I looked at a certain situation, then call it trauma, call it, you know, a life shift, whatever. But if you can recognize it as a harmful thing that maybe you need to heal from, that's where you can start. Exactly. And so recognizing those things and how you respond to things that relate back to that, because that's the ripple that it takes in your life. And so um, for me personally, simple one, anytime somebody would talk about dieting or food, I would want to rip their head off. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry to laugh, but (laughs) you know, nothing small around that. And, and I mean, uh, exactly. We, so it's we grew not up in little the same place. Room. Let's remember. We did grow up in the same household <laughs> and, and a very loving, very mm-hmm. nurturing household yes, we where nobody lucky. intended to cause any no. trauma. And so that's the thing is there's a lot of people like us who have been loved unconditionally their whole lives and have still experienced trauma. Yeah. 
and and the opposite to that around yeah and and so there's people who have had not nearly the privilege that we have who have experienced trauma and i would dare say most of the people that we know have had some sort of wound in their life that needs healing they may know it they may not know it they may call it trauma people may not want to call it trauma but we all have wounds that we need to heal from yeah i want to um tap into creativity for a second yeah. here and how it relates to healing so why do you think it's important to tap into call it creativity or or things that you love to do uh when it comes to shifting and healing or or simply breaking free from societal norms per se i think that creativity i well i think we're all creative and i think that creativity comes in myriad forms and for those listeners who have been very loyal to Margot, growing up, Margot was always the more artistic one. And I was Perceived. always the more, I, I'm not <laughs> done with my thought. I was always the more scholastic one. Truth. And that's not to say that I wasn't super creative and artistic and Margot isn't brilliant because both are true. And more than one thing can be true at the same time. Mm. Um, my medium was photography when I was young. I loved photography. I wanted to be a photojournalist. Margot could literally put a pencil on paper and create a masterpiece. And so that was a little daunting for me, stick figure drawing me. But I believe that we are all deeply creative. And some people may not have found their medium yet. And maybe some people's medium is helping people create beautiful lives. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the threads that you and I have been talking about a lot lately and, and has been woven in a lot of your recent podcasts is journaling mm -hmm. and how I believe that journaling you, can be done in many different mediums. For some people, it's putting pen or pencil to paper. For some people, it's art, it's drawing. Um, for Brandy Kincaid, it's both. Um, I love her work. Uh, for some people, it's vision boards. For some people, it's music. Um, I know that when you were young, you nary was there a conversation where you had to sit somewhere where there was not pages of doodling <laughs> still which is how still which is how you processed like how your brain was working with information coming in and it probably helped the information come in that's what they more. say and so i think that creativity is one of those things that people attach with producing something. Yeah. Yeah. And again, your value is not connected to your productivity. <laughs> <laughs> you can doodle. And if that helps you process something 
and nobody ever sees it, then that is a creative thing that helps you exist in this world. Yeah. And without art, none of the other stuff really matters because the beauty of what art is in our world is so important. Mm -hmm. And I think it's overlooked by people who have to go to a job and sit at a desk and earn the money. And we're trained to think that creative careers might not be as good as other careers, at least when we were kids. I'm hoping that that's much different now. It seems like it has, it's evolving. Evolving. Um, But for me, I, I mean, when I remember when Pinterest first came out and we were beta users and I would literally spend days, like 10 hour days, cultivating my Pinterest boards. And you had how many followers at the, in the beginning? Oh, I, I, I have about the same now as I did then. Um, almost 400,000. Right. And, and you, you know, that was the time when, when it was early and, and Shelly was chosen as one of those, if you if you're new here, you should follow this person. And, and it's interesting because that was right when influencers or the term even started coming out because mm-hmm. it was bloggers were still kind of where an influencer started and you were you were absolutely contacted by people saying will you pin this and will you pin that and that's where i feel like for you you were like what this isn't why i'm doing well, this because it was a creative outlet for me yeah yeah and i didn't want to turn it into somebody else's work yeah yeah. And it was fun. I was a pinfluencer. <laughs> yes, you were. <laughs> you know, I feel like many people struggle though, as as you briefly mentioned, with feeling stuck and stagnant, for sure in the creative lives, but I think lives in general, um, which we've touched on. What advice do you have mm. for someone who wants to create positive change and live that best life? Are there are there practical steps to take? I know you've experienced many. Uh, yes, there are. And I think that it it starts with a simple recognition that you deserve to have even five minutes just for yourself hmm. away from the world. And if you're a busy mom with pets who like to take go to the bathroom with you, you may need to lock yourself in the bathroom for five minutes to get it done. But it starts there. It starts with recognizing. Mm. And and also, I like to add the caveat that it's not, it's not about toxic positivity at all. Mm. <laughs> I... <laughs> Sorry for chuckling, but yeah. Um, there's a lot of that out there. And that's not what this is about. This is about allowing space and grace for yourself in any given day. And that may be five minutes. It may be five minutes in the car, maybe five minutes locked in the bathroom, or maybe you have a little bit more spaciousness and you can get up 10 minutes earlier and go light a candle 
and write for five minutes. Or I, I like to stay away from electronics, but for me, opening my notes app and talking is a mm-hmm. better journaling form for me than writing oh, because good. my thoughts flow a little bit differently. So open your notes app and hit the microphone and just talk. Hmm. And you'll start to just open up new pathways. But the most important thing is you're worth it. Your hmm. joy is worth five minutes a day. The other thing that I love to recommend for people to do is everybody has a song, even if it's like a right now song that makes you want to get up and dance or a song that you've always had that makes you want to get up and dance or a song that just makes you really happy. Mm. Put that song on once a day Mm. and dance it out. Yeah. Yeah. Just makes you feel good. Just dance it out. And and here's the thing is that it actually scientifically improves your stress levels because movement helps move stress through your body. And as we've talked about earlier, some of us have been brought up to believe that movement was a necessary thing to achieve other things. That's not what this is about. <laughs> this is about joy. Hmm. So dance like no one's watching, or as I like to say, dance like everyone's watching and you don't give a fuck. (laughs) Yeah. Because life is short. Dance it out. Speaking of which, can you share uh, if there was a specific turning point in your life that highlights this journey of self-discovery and transformation for you? And I'm smiling because she knows the answer already, but (laughs) the way I um, absolutely was started on my journey uh, through grief. And, and I think a lot of people journey into a deeper self-discovery through grief. Um, My friend, Jennifer Golick was shot and killed by a patient of hers five years ago, five and a half years ago. And to say that it was life altering is an understatement because you're on a path and a tragic event happens in your life. And that pathway is just no longer there. Yeah. And you're not aware of it. You're just aware of the fact that this horrible thing has happened. And initially you're absolutely like dog paddling in the giant waves of grief. And my initial response was to try and do things that Jennifer would have done. Yeah. Like running in races. Yeah. Like foot, foot races. (laughs) Let's review. (laughs) But you did, you, you just things that I never would have done. And, don't really enjoy, but it was like, I wanted to be as close to her as I could. And that was how I was processing that. But what I did for myself was I started working, working with a coach. Um, My first coach was Lacey Young and she is a beautiful, magical, 
human who she was the first person who said to me, what if nothing was wrong? What if all of these things that you've been taught to believe are wrong with you all of your life? What if nothing was wrong? And that too was life altering. I all of a sudden that put me on another path because what if nothing was wrong? Or the things we perceive as wrong weren't wrong after all. Exactly. What if there wasn't right and wrong? What if there just is? And I I honored Jen on this journey because she has set me on this path that I ne- I would not be here if she were so alive. And so I I honor that. And I know that there are a lot of people out there, most people who have had a grief experience that has shattered them. And, and people say, oh, it'll get better. And I know that nobody ever said this to me. You'll get through it or get over it. And nobody should ever, ever, ever say those things to people in grief because you don't get over it. Grief is equal to love. And if you love somebody and you're grieving them, it doesn't go away. It does change. It evolves. And I describe it as, as it's like the ocean. Initially, when you experience grief, you are dog paddling in the darkest storm in the ocean that you've ever been in. And it does evolve. And now there are days when the water might, the tide might even go out enough that it's not touching my feet, but I know it's there. And then there are the sleeper waves that come when you, you least expect them. There are the anniversaries and the birthdays, and you know, those are going to like, the water's going to be higher on those days, but there are the sleeper waves and things for those of us who we consider ourselves survivors of gun violence because we've lost a loved one to gun violence. Every time there's a shooting, it's that wound is there. And, and that, and that's true for people in different experiences of grief. Well, and I think too, I mean, I, I sort of see Jen as someone who was your equal in, in, just what you were seeking and searching out in life and your professional life. She was like the person who you could talk to about things that nobody else would get because you were both in the same trenches. And without that, and with all, especially COVID coming fast on the heels of that tragedy, to not have her to bounce ideas and thoughts and frustrations off of, I just imagine over and over again, how exacerbated that loss is so much so much so i mean i i miss her in those moments of cracking open and moving forward and wanting to share and wanting to bounce it off of her she's so good at that and i think that one of the important things that i've learned in the last few years is that having a circle or circles of people who support you, who get you, with whom you can be vulnerable. It's so important. It's so vital 
to allowing us to become, as I, I jokingly say, as I am more sure that I'm not for everyone. It's nice to know that if somebody points that out to me, I have people that are for me that I can go to. That's a really good thing to remember in, in whatever thing we're doing. Like maybe you have a restaurant and, and you think your food is wonderful, but wonderful, but it's not for everyone. Or maybe you're an artist and your style is you find your people or you're a barber or you're a, you make clothing or whatever that thing is you do, the way you show up is your way. And I think it's easy to like think, oh, I need to fit into that. Having a teenager, I see that, you know, oh, I need to fit into this friend group or that friend group. And then when you realize you don't have to, and your true friends are going to show up or your clients or your best, whatever situations, we just have to keep remembering that and realize when we're not living fully into that. Yeah. It's that people pleasing and acceptance that we're, we, we're told is, well, I mean, we're taught by our families, but also it's so reinforced in school. If you're not accepted, if you're weird or different, unique, unique, it can be quite painful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to straighten each other's crowns instead of knocking them off is really what I'm all about. That's what it's about. Well, it's been really amazing watching you lean into the work you've done and find those peer groups through masterminds and different things. And, and on so many different levels, I mean, we've talked a lot about trauma and healing and crisis and things like that, but you were like, Hey, this is happening in our world and I want to learn more about it. And I want to change my perspective. And some of that came from trauma and maybe some of it, I mean, trauma, I was going to say COVID, but trauma and maybe Jen, but I feel like a lot of it was because of the work you did. And and you were like, I radically want to show up in a different way. What do you like share yes. some of those things that you've done? Sure. So for me, I, I mean, I was kind of born a little activist <laughs> and kind of, I, I think I evolved out of it for the sake of being more accepted and I mean, I organized my first sit-in when I was in seventh grade. <laughs> what was it for? It was, <laughs> they had arranged for the school to go to see the Ballet Folklorico, which I'm sure was lovely, but they gave us the option of going or not going. And so some of us opted not to go. And then they gave us like garden tools and put us to work. Like rakes and shovels. and So they didn't tell you what your options were up this front. This is at school. They did not provide us with our options up front. And so probably because I didn't want to do physical labor, <laughs> I organized a sit-in. So we all went and sat in the hallway outside of Mr. McDonald's office. Did it work? Well, we didn't have to do physical labor. <laughs> <laughs> they had to figure out what the heck to do with you. Oh, God. Sorry, I digress. <laughs> I just <laughs> the lustrous start of my career. So I, I think that that's, that's a great example of getting to a midlife-ish point, as I like to say, because I'm not going to really define midlife. It's a feeling. Getting to a midlife-ish point and realizing that there's this part of you that you have ignored for years. And so my journey in 
liberation work and anti-racism work. I mean, I built shanties for apartheid when I was in college. Hmm. We weren't cool. So that I think that's about the point where I started to be like, oh, I really kind of want to fit in with the cool kids. And now I'm not for everybody. So that's okay. But I had been working uh, and doing a lot of work and following a lot of people around the anti-diet movement. And that is a movement that is, there are many leaders of that movement who are Black women. And we can talk a whole nother episode on diet culture and racism, but that's for another day. And then listening to those very powerful Black women I also was receiving their messaging on other things. And I was really leaning in. And I had signed up for a class with Monique Melton on anti-racism. And then Ahmaud Aubrey was killed. And then Breonna Taylor was killed. And I was listening to a podcast. And the theme of the podcast was from slave owner's wife to influencer, which was really edgy. And it was three amazing Black women educators who I still am in community with. Maisha T. Hill, Letty, and God forgive me, Letty, I can't remember your last name right now. And according to Louise, Louisa Duran. And they then did a webinar and then they did um, like Facebook group with learning and I I would have to look at the calendar, but I think the webinar was either on the day that George Floyd was killed or like the day before. And so the timing of it was very electrified. Mm, understatement. And really threw me in because when I heard that webinar and I heard these three women who have different backgrounds and so much passion talking about racism and liberation work is really the liberation work. I, a part of me that I had not listened to in over 20 years, sat up and said, I'm still here. And I am, as I said, still in community with these women. Weeze is one of my most trusted mentors and guides. And I consider her a dear friend. And my liberation work is ongoing. It's a daily thing because like we talked about earlier, everything that we're brought up in to believe in, in this society is ingrained in us Mm. from little kids. And it's so easy to fall back into habits, particularly if you never knew to recognize them in the first place. Yeah. So that's well, been a really a, a journey that I am very grateful to have gone on. I'm sorry for the lives lost that made it so hmm. timely, of course, and continue to be lost. Again, it's a daily work. Well, I think that digging so deeply into things that were maybe new territory for you as a, you know, a cis white woman were so helpful in how you could work with other people as well. I think it's a part of the tapestry um, of who I am and how I show up. It's now deeply woven into 
who I am and, and the work that I do, because so much of what particularly midlife-ish women are encountering is based on our culture and our society and learning things and unlearning things that we've just have just always been a way of life. And that's a huge part of my work. Rightfully so. And let's not forget, you were in intensive care during COVID, the whole thing. You you had some of the first cases of COVID. So there's not, <laughs> not to add one more like notch on your belt buckle, but you know, I feel like you saw some of our world's lowest lows and most scary unknowing moments and were I feel like you're you you um commit to education every step of the way so you you were finding sources that and and in groups where you were getting information valid information and and you know really leaned into how can I help the healers how can I help the people that are helping other people which is an understatement in itself and I I feel like all this has led to just immense compassion. Um, I don't know if you want to speak into that part at all. Well, I think that our healthcare professionals at every level, going into COVID, we were already in a system that was dysfunctional, and I'm being kind. And so there was already a level of burnout and dissatisfaction and distrust in the system. And then COVID came. And there was no time off for us. <laughs> you didn't even have protection to wear. We, I remember ordering a box of, of rain ponchos from Amazon in case we ran out of gowns. The gowns that you were re-wearing and re-wearing. Re-wearing. So, and we were always taught that when you put on a mask, you discard it as soon as you take it off. And when you were put on a gown... You discard it as soon as you take it off. That's to prevent further spreading of whatever might be on your gown or your mask. And so then all of a sudden we were wearing masks and we would, we had a system where there was a paper bag and you would put your N95 mask in the paper bag because you just wore a regular surgical mask when you weren't in contact with patients. And then you put your, N95 in the bag with your name on it. And then you would have hash marks. And when you wore it a certain number of times, I think you're supposed to throw it away and get a new one. But it was for, for me, that initial absolute fear mm-hmm. of knowing how bad things were. And I remember, I think it was a Marco Polo that I sent to you and KT about uh, in tears about how scared I was for my sister and my best friend who both have some lung issues and how I just needed them to promise me that they were going to stay safe because I didn't have the capacity to worry about anyone outside of where I was. And I just vividly remember that was like March of 20. Yeah, we lost some time in the middle of all that. And then um, just watching the most amazing people step up to be the 
be everything for people who were hospitalized because nobody was allowed in to be with their loved ones. And I don't know a single nurse or respiratory therapist that would let somebody die alone. And there, I I mean, there are vivid, vivid memories that I have of COVID and just the overall exhaustion. And yet everybody rose to the occasion. Everybody. There were there were new to ICU nurses who, and in California, the the there are mandated ratios. So the, our mandated ratio is a maximum of two ICU patients to one nurse. And during COVID, this there were uh, exceptions made. You had to apply to the state, and they gave exceptions. So these are brand. You know, I mean, all the nurses were carrying three to one patients, and these are maybe some of the sickest patients you've ever taken care of. And then to go from one patient room into another patient room, you're changing out equipment and trying to keep yourself safe and trying to keep the patients safe. And just the, from every level of healthcare, everyone I worked with stepped up Mm. and it was I mean, as devastating and traumatic as it was for all of us, it was, I was so proud mm. of my, my profession and my coworkers professions and to be, I, I mean, the teamwork that, that was required. I just don't even have words. It was truly remarkable. And then as COVID ebbed, and became more manageable, let's say. And we had vaccines and we had, um, I mean, the Delta strain was pretty brutal, but it became a little less devastating. And mind you, we're still losing thousands of people a month to this disease. So it's not to be taken lightly, but it got easier to manage. Mm -hmm. And what healthcare workers, again, at every level. So I'm talking physicians to unit clerks and everyone in between, the people who clean the rooms, everybody is affected by this. And then you compound that with now, I believe I read this week that healthcare workers have the highest risk for on-the-job injury and not just due to you know heavy lifting, but because people hurt them. Mm -hmm. And the working conditions have not improved since COVID. They were already needing improvement. And we've watched people leave the profession, both nursing and physicians, providers, because it's, as I see it, we come to this work with a calling. I mean, I didn't become a nurse to earn money. It's nice to earn money. But I became a nurse because of a calling and our calling is we're not able to provide what we want to, let alone what we need to on a lot of levels. And so I think a lot of people are grieving their calling. Mm. And so I think there's a lot of work and a lot of support and healing to be done for people in the healing professions. I think, um, that circles back to, you know, all of us, when you think about your calling, 
like we said in the very beginning, you might wake up and realize you've been on the same treadmill for a certain, for a long, long time. And and you have other things you'd love to do. I'm going to flip over to one of my last questions. What does it mean to recognize your true path, your calling? I think, and I've used that word liberation a lot, but it is in one way liberating because when you recognize it and you step into something that has such deep meaning for yourself, then you can let a lot of the detritus you've been carrying around while you've been trying to figure it out or where you've been pretending to do other things, that can slip away. You can divest yourself from the detritus. And I mean, there's so many shoulds, but one of my very favorite Shel Silverstein poems is basically listen to the mustn'ts child, but it's, we are so focused on the shoulds, particularly when we're younger, that stepping into your why allows you to turn off the shoulds. And it's, I just, the opportunity to walk with people on their healing journey, be it in the hospital, be it in coaching, be it in my future mental health role. It is such an honor and a privilege to be invited to accompany people on those journeys. Mm. And I mean that with every fiber of my being, it is an honor and a privilege. Mm. I love that. What, piece of advice would you like to leave our listeners with, especially for those who may be struggling to find that path and live a more fulfilling life? Um, well, I think we've said a few of them. It's never too late. There you go. It is never too late. And I think one of the most valuable things that I say to myself all the time is if you're worried about somebody judging you, there's always going to be somebody judging you. So you might as well do what you want to do and do it your way. You have a vision boarding class and an upcoming mastermind for midlife-ish women coming up. Can you enlighten us I a little do. bit? I do. Yes. Um, so I'm going to be hosting an online vision board class sometime in mid-November um, love that. And there are, I mean, I remember sitting and cutting words out of magazines and cutting pictures. Um, we're going to do it electronically using Canva and gathering images, because as long as you're not using it to sell something, you can gather them and put them on your vision board. Um, and vision boards are so great because they serve so many purposes. Um, I look right at now on the daily. I have a vision board for my business. I have a vision board for my style. I have a vision board for travel. Um, and then I have a vision board for big dreams. And so the workshop's going to be fun. It's also going to talk. We're also going to talk a little bit about going a little deeper and looking at some of those uh, parts of us that maybe we haven't had on our vision board and deserve to be there. 
So that'll be sometime in mid-October via Zoom. October, November. Oh, sorry. Sometime in November via Zoom. Thank you. And then in January, I am launching a mastermind for midlife-ish women. It's going to be uniquely geared towards women. And again, midlife-ish is however you feel it. And we're going to really look at going from stuck and stagnant to living our full lives on on our best terms. Mm -hmm. And again, that could look like making a few adjustments and just adding some of you back into your life. Or it could look like quitting your job and moving to a magical island somewhere. Or not quitting your job and moving to a magical island. Or not quitting your job and moving to a magical island. But it's going to be six months. It's going to be a a circle, a sisterhood. And we're going to do some deep dives. And it's going to be a nice, safe space for people to do this work and really grasp onto some things that will fulfill their lives. Sounds amazing. I'm proud of you. Uh, I'm proud of you, my Swissy. Understatement. Thank you. Happy anniversary to your podcast a little, a little late. Thank you. Um, Yeah. I, it's the one most consistent thing I do, which I love so much. Tell me who's inspiring you. Well, Mary Oliver always inspires me. I don't remember who I wrote down first, but um, that's why I'm here. Claire Staples, who is the founder of Sky Dog Sanctuary, inspires me every day because What's Sky Dog Sanctuary. I will say, Sky Dog Sanctuary is a, a sanctuary that is a place, a safe place to land. For horses, mainly wild Mustangs who have been unjustly rounded up from their native lands. And this is a place for them to go and be as wild as they can. uh, Well, in some form of captivity, though, I really don't think they're very captive. They um, enjoy wonderful lives. And there are two locations, one in Malibu and one in uh, Central Oregon. And Claire, the founder, really has, through thick and through thin, I mean, she was literally sick in bed saving horses last week. And through thick and through thin, she just continues to find time and time to advocate for these most magnificent creatures and she really has in their best interest really cultivates a active large following on social media which has enabled us and I say us because I'm a devoted follower and uh, sponsor and supporter but it has allowed us to save many horses and bring them back to freedom Um, Some horses are brought from very loving owners who just, these horses were meant to be wild. It's hard to take a 20-year-old stallion off of the range, geld them, and have them trained into saddle horses. And uh, it's given them a space to um, really be wild again. And uh, I was able to visit Skydog, and it was a life altering experience for me. My big dream 
is to either partner with an existing sanctuary or have a sanctuary space where people can come during their healing journey Mm -hmm. and receive the healing power of horses because they are such sentient creatures and they, oh, they know so much. They're so wise and they are not livestock. They are true gifts. And so um, they help us heal. And so Claire is, is a, a inspiration for me, for sure. And that. you, my Swissy, you're an inspiration for me. Thanks. Right back at you. Love that. Thanks for hanging out and sharing so much of you. It's sure. A gift. Thanks for having me. Sure. Where can people find you? Um, my website is ShellyTantaw.com. And most of the socials I'm at S Tantaw. It'll all be in the show notes. So here's that poem by Shel Silverstein. Listen to the mustn'ts child. Listen to the don'ts. Listen to the shouldn'ts, the impossibles, the won'ts. Listen to the never haves. Then listen close to me. Anything can happen, child. Anything. Anything can be. Can be. Love you. Love you. Thanks for being here, everyone. Before you go, I just want to say a quick thanks for tuning in. I hope you found something useful to take away and something to make you think. For those of you listening in on Spotify, and I know there are many, you now have the cool option to show your love for Windowsill Chats quickly and easily. From the show page in the Spotify app, you can simply tap to rate it one to five stars. And of course, I'll really appreciate it too if you leave a review wherever you might be listening. See you next week, lovelies, and I hope it's a creative one.